Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Mathematics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Corey Brunson, a host of the channel. I'm talking today with Rachel and Rody Steinig, authors of Math Renaissance, Growing Math Circles, Changing Classrooms, and Creating Sustainable Math Education, published in 2018 by Natural Math. This book is a fantastic introduction to the math circle model of, ed- of mathematics education, especially for educators interested in adopting the model. The book approaches the topic from two directions, recounting the facilitators' experiences with students in several math circles, and reflecting on the conditions and practice of math education that might make an alternative model attractive. Both authors have joined me to discuss the book. Rachel and Rody, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you both. So to begin with, could you share a bit about your own mathematical backgrounds or your backgrounds as mathematicians and as mathematics educators? Sure, this is Rhody. I'll go first. I'll just say that when I was a child, I just loved math so much. And by the time I was in probably fifth or sixth grade, I was just inventing and discovering things all over the place, um, having a lot of fun with it. And then when I was um, in college, I ended up majoring in economics, which was an amazing thing for me to discover that you could apply mathematics to human behavior. I worked in business for a while. I was creating algorithms and spreadsheets to project sales by item and things like that. And then I went to grad school for education and I've been teaching all kinds of things ever since then, preschool through adults. But once I got introduced to math circles back in 2011, that's really been my focus because I, I love every aspect of it. And Rachel? Yeah, so I don't have as much of a background in mathematics or education. Um, in our book, I wrote from my experience as a student, both in alternative forms of education, such as math circles, and in more mainstream forms of math education, such as public schools. I always liked math, but it was always a difficult subject for me, and it was never my favorite subject. So I feel like in a lot of ways, I, I was a pretty 
average, I had a pretty average or typical experience with math that it was very challenging for me and frustrating for me. But I also had some really great experiences with math in math circles, which I think is more unique. Um, and I am very grateful to have been able to have those experiences since a lot of people are not able to. Um, and yeah, I recently graduated with my bachelor's degree in international relations, and I plan on working in international human rights law. So not exactly related to mathematics or education, but I do really love um, teaching and working with children and teenagers as well. And I'm also very interested in policy and the human rights perspective, which I try to infuse in um, my chapters in our book. Yeah, one thing you mentioned is the, oh, I'm sorry. On one hand, I think it's great to have mathematicians in all areas of research and work so that you're going into international human rights law sounds fantastic and congratulations on your bachelor's. So let me ask, what is the story behind your co-authorship of this book? And also what readers are you trying to target? Sure. Yeah. So from my end, um, Rhody was and is a math circle facilitator. Um, and I began to participate in the math circles that um, she began she uh, began to teach around 2011. Um, so I was mainly just a student of math circles. But as I got more involved, and also since I was her daughter, I sometimes helped to facilitate the math circles for younger students um, and helped edit and write some of her blogs. Um, so I ended up being, becoming involved from the perspective primarily as a student. Um, and for us, having this co-authorship model um, was really key because there are really not that many books, articles, um, or perspectives um, from students on math education reform. Um, so we tried to infuse both the perspective of an educator and a student. Um, and I feel like they very much complement each other and provide different perspectives. And from my perspective, um, when I started running math circles, I was writing these reports to parents because I wanted them to know what was going on. And then I, those reports became blogs and Rachel was helping me a lot with that. And then I was approached by um, Maria Druzhkova, the um, founder of Natural Math, asking if I was interested in turning those blogs into a book. And I should have, she said, I should have a co-author. And the person that immediately jumped into my mind was Rachel because she was already intimately involved and because she had that perspective that was very different from my own. And our, nice. our, our target readers, I would think, would be parents, um, educators, and students probably yeah it seems to me like your book would appeal to a wide range of potential readers and so getting into the book let me ask as an opening question if you could say what is mathematics and what is mathematical thinking and how do you distinguish between the two so rachel do you want to take that one or should i um you can start and then i'll add on Okay, so I've been thinking about that question as I always think about it. And um, I think that mathematics is the, the search for the structure of things, uh, looking for a sense of meaning in things, um, a search for truth 
And um, I think of it as a creative challenge as well. So I think in my mind, I think of mathematics as a, a search for something. Um, and mathematical thinking is more about the process that we can use to search for these things, where we ask a lot of questions, we try to uncover and state assumptions, where we posit a bunch of conjectures and test them out and find that most of them don't work and reject them. And we realize that this isn't working because we assumed that thing and that was wrong. Um, and we're inventing methods, we're discovering methods um, to engage in this um, search for certainty, perhaps. Yeah, I would just add that um, to me, mathematics is about answering deep questions about the universe and about the structure of living things, um, and that some math problems are unsolved or perhaps maybe unsolvable, um, but people continue to work on them year after year. Um, so I think that mathematics, um, in contrast to the way that it tends to be perceived um, in mainstream culture, in educational spaces, um, where it is primarily presented as algorithmic in nature, I think that it's really about um, the deeper structure of the universe. Um, but alas, this is often not the way that it is taught or presented um, in educational spaces. So I feel like there are often misconceptions about what math is, and people often equate um, arithmetic with all types of mathematics, when in fact there are many different types of mathematics. So Rachel, you mentioned just now several assumptions that, get in, that mathematics gets infused with, and I wonder if you could expand on that a bit. What are some of the assumptions that, in your book, you make a point of challenging? Yeah, so in my experience as a student and speaking with other students, I think there are a lot of assumptions and stereotypes about math and about who is good at math and what is taught in math classes. So, for example, I think that a misconception about math is that um, memorization and algorithms are key, when in fact, yes, memorization of algorithms can be very useful and important to math, um, but there are other types of mathematics. Um, and another assumption that I think is important to mention is the idea that some people are just naturally good at math, um, when in fact brain plasticity exists, there's no such thing as a specific gene or biology that makes some people better at math than others. Um, so I think education surrounding the importance of and scientific support of a growth mindset is key to changing assumptions about math. And in education more broadly, I think we often tend to assume that certain people are just naturally quote-unquote smart with more of an acumen for certain subjects and other people aren't. Um, and these assumptions also have, have um, kind of gendered and racial biases as well. So for example, in gender biases, um, the idea that boys or men are naturally better at math um, kind of stemming from systemic oppression of marginalized groups. Um, so these assumptions don't uh, affect everyone equally. Um, they affect people depending on the, the person or the individual's degree of marginalization in the society. And so let me ask you both, um, 
you've talked about your different perspectives as an educator and as a student. And the book itself is written not exactly as a dialogue between you, but as a collection of dialogues that you're having with yourselves, with each other, and with, in some sense, people that you've interviewed or engaged with. So could you say a bit about why you chose to organize the book this way? So from my end, a lot of my chapters in the book are um, actual reports of what everybody said during the math circle. I said this, and that student said that, and then this other student said that, and by the way, Rachel was there taking notes on this whole thing um, when she was much younger so that I was able to be very accurate in reporting it to to the parents. Um, and I ended up keeping it in that structure for a number of reasons. Um, I really want readers to draw their own conclusions. First of all, I don't want to just put opinions out there um, as this is how it ought to be done. I just want to show what happened. Um, and I wanted it to be an interesting read. And it's a lot, things are a lot more interesting to me when there's dialogue involved. So I just put that in there. And I, I also wanted the readers to see my struggles with things. And that I thought came across more clearly when it was a, when it was a dialogue. And I wanted to also show that the how deeply the students were thinking. So having the quotes from the students hopefully shows the readers, wow, these, these young people are, are really thinking deeply. I definitely want you to get into a little bit of detail later on uh, about how you, about the content of some of your chapters that recount these math circles. But let me Go first back to Rachel, who wrote some of these introductory chapters, which go pretty deep into the difficulties faced, uh, not just by mathematics instruction as an institution, but by, math but by mathematics instructors as individuals. How did you go about your research for these chapters? I would say that I went about my research in a variety of ways. Um, most of them pretty informal um, and drawing from personal experiences and conversations that I had. I didn't do a large scale um, interview based study, um, but more focused on personal accounts. Um, so, for example, uh, I've in I interviewed a few different teachers um, and they were mainly either teachers of mine or teachers that I had met in my personal life through friends or family connections. Um, I also used anecdotal um, observations and quotes from students and teachers that had been in my classes, all anonymous, of course. Um, and I also um, used social media and email to solicit um, responses to Google Forms or um, short questionnaires um, about people's experiences in math uh, classes in the past. Um, so that was more of the interview-based um, and quote-based um, methodology, um, but I didn't I didn't conduct many um, uh, like long in-depth interviews with individuals. And a lot of it was more um, like them writing their responses and then sending them to me in a much more casual manner. Um, and then in terms of I did write a little bit about education policy uh, and a few international case studies. Um, and that was completely research-based, not drawn from my personal experience. Um, and the, the parts that I wrote about um, 
the local education, like my own personal school district and our school district's um, issues with our funding formula and the allocation of um, tax property taxes to schooling. Um, all, it came from my personal experience on the one hand of living that, but also came from doing research online and knowing teachers and students who were involved in activist groups. So I would really say that a, I used a variety of sources, um, may, mostly pretty informal. And I'll say that they came together very well. It was surprising to me just how much research in some cases had been done and was accessible to bear upon the kinds of things you were describing at, at first in terms of your own personal experience. Yeah, thank so, you. One of the key concepts you get into is inquiry-based learning. Could you define IBL and maybe rattle off what its essential features are? Rody, do you want to? Sure. So, so IBL stands for inquiry-based learning, and um, it's based on the assumption that humans have an innate urge to find our own knowledge, to be curious, to follow our curiosity. And if facilitators can set up a scenario where students can follow their curiosity, not necessarily follow a pre-directed pre direction, students will will learn. It's a natural thing. It'll give students ownership. Um, and it has a lot of positive educational outcomes. Um, our, our math circle is not pure inquiry-based learning. If it were absolutely pure, and I was talking about formal logic as, um, as um, Dodgson, who actually was, had the alias Lewis Carroll, who wrote the... Um, Alice in Wonderland books, if we were talking about all of his math, if the students wanted to finish the course talking about the literature of Alice in Wonderland, we might have done that. Um, but so it's, it's slightly reined in inquiry-based learning because we're sticking with math here. And um, I was reading an article today, um, an older article from 2016 from the Journal of Education and Practice that um, is a literature review of the benefits um, of IBL, of um, what the research shows are the outcomes and I'll just rattle off a few that it it develops students intellectual abilities but it also develops their emotional skills um, that it helps students acquire knowledge that it gives students a way to organize concepts and principles in their order of importance um, studies show that students under this approach can end up more systematic, critical, logical, and analytical than in some more um, authoritarian traditional ways of teaching. Um, the studies show that the long-term effects are that students have an increased ability to transfer knowledge, that students retain the knowledge better, um, and in addition to improving the academic achievement, um, has positive effects on students' attitude and motivation. And with these benefits in mind, um, I think it was Rachel's chapters still that were 
looking into curriculum design and educational practice where you do a very comprehensive and I think very fair and considerate job of assessing the dilemmas faced by parents, parents, by teachers, and by school kids. So do you have, could you share some thoughts about what all of us as stakeholders could do to at least improve access to inquiry-based learning? Yes, for sure. And to go off what you just said, I think phrasing it as improving access to inquiry-based learning is very much in line with uh, my objective in writing my chapters and our objective in this book in that I tried to focus mainly on curriculum design um, in the public school system because although I personally um, received a more alternative education for most of my life and math circles are often conducted outside of school hours, um, the majority of mathematics education takes place in the public school system um, and also for for reasons of equity and privilege, most children are not do not have a choice about whether they're going to attend public school or whether they can engage in a math enrichment program such as math circles. So there are a lot of equity issues there. But yes, just to go off what you were saying, um, I tried to focus mainly on providing a comprehensive, as best I could, look at some of the dilemmas um, about some of the dilemmas that um, teachers, parents, and students face as we try to um, increase access to inquiry-based education. So, for example, from the teacher perspective, um, it's often challenging because uh, there's a lot of standardized testing, there are pretty strict curriculum, um, and often teachers have to cover um, a, lot of, a lot of content within a year. They also have to deal, um, often act um, as with as classroom managers, which can be challenging. Um, is a lot, all of these problems are exacerbated in underfunded school districts with students living in poverty where not all of their basic needs are met. So there are a variety of challenges facing teachers. Um, so I tried to include in my chapters um, with my interviews with teachers some small suggestions about Perhaps if teachers personally have the resources and the time to um, engage in some self-education on inquiry-based education. Um, also, uh, some suggestions on teacher training programs or universities incorporating more education on, first off, on mathematics, because a lot of elementary school educators really don't have a deep grounding in mathematics and mathematical thinking, but also on inquiry-based learning. Um, but just as a caveat <laughs> to to really display like the true complexity of the issue, if teachers have a certain curriculum that they have to follow, which I'm not arguing is a bad thing, but that's just kind of the reality. And with also with a high degree, a high degree of standardized testing, it doesn't always feel fair to put the burden on teachers outside of the hours of their job and their grading homework to teach themselves about inquiry-based education. So it really is complicated, but I do think that there there is room for brainstorming solutions, um, which I tried to do. Um, but obviously, I don't have all of the solutions. And it is challenging. But I do think that it is possible, little by little, to enact change both at the classroom level, as well as the policy level, the student level, all, all of the micro and macro. Indeed. And to the extent that these decisions and these opportunities need to be determined locally, your book, I think, provides a pretty good launching ground for those discussions if people are looking for one. 
So we've talked about math circles without really defining the term. So Rodi, since you wrote several of these sections, I wonder if you could talk through the logistics of conducting or facilitating a math circle. Sure. So I'll talk through the logistics of facilitating the math circle that I lead, because there's actually many different models and styles of doing math circles. So what happens in mine is the a facilitator and a group of students come into a room together, whether it be a classroom or a picnic table outside or a Zoom room, wherever, and the facilitator states a problem. And ideally, the problem is what could be called an accessible mystery. Accessible meaning everybody can wrap their minds around it. Sometimes in the math education world, people refer to problems like accessible problems as um, low floor, high ceiling. So no matter what level you're at, you can um, find something in there. And it's a mystery, which means that our innate human curiosity, our need to find the underlying structure of things is activated. And then hopefully what happens is right away, the students ask a whole lot of questions about the problem to try to clarify it because that's what mathematicians do. There's some um, question and the mathematicians say, well, what, what's meant by this word and what's meant by that word and are we allowed to do this and what are the constraints, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, ideally, the facilitator just is trying not to say anything, trying not to... Um, give methods or hints or anything like that, but we'll clarify things that are unclear. And often the problem is phrased in an intentionally vague way to really get the participants to use that mathematical thinking skill of questioning. And then hopefully it turns into a collaboration, a conversation where the participants are just sitting around in the circle um, or on the floor or whatever talking amongst themselves about what if we try this? No, let's try that and, and try a bunch of things. And um, by the end of their exploration, whether it's sitting down, you know, for an hour together or whether it's in a six-week course, I do a lot of six-week courses, hopefully by the end, maybe the question will have been answered. Maybe the problem will have been solved. Not always. The process is really more important than the product. Um, but those are, I guess, the basics. And it might be a lot to ask, but I wonder if, it, if you think it would be helpful to talk through maybe a Cliff's Notes version of one of the math circles you recount in the book? Sure. Um, let's see. Why don't I... Um, I'll talk about the logic chapter, since I already mentioned... Um, Charles Dodgson, a.k.a. Lewis Carroll. So mm -hmm. he wrote logic puzzles that read as po literary poems. All right. So, so I came into the room with some very young children. Maybe they were six or seven, I think. And I put up on the board this. All puddings are nice. This dish is a pudding. 
no nice things are wholesome. And I didn't really say anything else. And then the students started asking a lot of questions about it. What does it mean? What's a pudding? What's the point of this? Um, and that somehow morphed into logic. Um, and I combined that question with a game called Knights and Knaves or Knights and Liars where um, we talk about an imaginary island where every single person on it is either a knight or a liar. And it's the um, students or participants' job to determine who's a knight and who's a liar based upon what they say. I made it a lot more complicated, though, by having it be puppets. So everybody was holding puppets. So it was really puppets who were maybe knights, maybe liars, or maybe you were asking the questions to, or maybe the questions were being asked to. And um, we started out um, just coming up with this idea that there, some things are true, some things are not, and there, what's the difference between statements and questions. And we got into over, I think it was six weeks, all kinds of topics in formal logic which eventually could have been applied to this um, Charles Dodgson, Dodgson logic puzzles. We got into statements, negations, conditional statements, categorical statements, converses, inverses, by the very, very end, even touching upon the contrapositive. And these little kids didn't really know that this is something people usually do in college. They were just having a lot of fun trying to play with the puppets and trying to solve this mystery at the same time. And it, um, by putting in the drama of the playing with the puppets, I think it took, took away the edge of how difficult the actual mathematics was so that they could solve, solve some problems. It also, if I may say, made reading the account quite delightful, being able to keep track of what puppets with what names <laughs> exhibited what behavior, and interestingly, seeing the students wrestle with making sure that their puppets were behaving consistently and challenging each other on what their puppets were saying. Yeah, I think it. In, on the one hand, it intellectually made it harder by adding in this layer of puppets because the puppets were really acting and um, that made it more complicated. But on the other hand, Emotionally, it made it easier because it um, it gave it put a narrative in, it put a story in, and it deflected um, fear of mistakes because if somebody said something wrong, it was the puppet saying it wrong, not the person saying it wrong. And um, I think a lot when I think about using the puppets, how some people say, "Oh, math is." not emotional at all it's just a bunch of rules and logic but on but a lot of people feel that math is the most emotional of all the academic disciplines mm. because so much of people's ego and social discourse and academic achievement is tied into math grades which brings us i guess back to the things that rachel's talking about in the book rachel did you want to say something a moment ago Okay. So there's a couple more questions I wanted to ask you, Rodi, about the conduct of math circles, and maybe I'll wrap them into one. 
one of the benefits of reading these chapters was an under was gaining a better understanding of what the objectives of a math circle are and what sort of challenges a facilitator might face. And so I wonder if you could say something about what those objectives are, but also how a facilitator will know when they're doing well or when they're not doing so well or have something to work on. Okay, so the way I assess whether the math circle is going well is what happens when I say, okay, time's up at the end of the session. Um, and if the students all say, ah, or just keep talking about math or just keep doing what we're doing, then in my mind, it's going well. But if they just jump out and run out the door, that makes me think it's time for me to reassess why didn't they want to just keep doing it? That's an easy thing for me to um, measure things by. Um, in terms of what the goal is, again, different math circles have different goals. Um, with my math circle, I want to, I'm, I'm actually running down just a kind of, of a list of things I want to happen. I want the participants to learn how rich mathematical content really is. I want students to have to develop some deep conceptual understanding as opposed to applying algorithms um, to, to things. I want students to be able to engage in the creative side of math. I'd like them to do it collaboratively in the real world. Mathematicians work collaboratively, um, not just out there competing with each other to win this thing or win that thing. Um, I want um, I want the students to really like invent and discover their their own math and find um, find the beauty in it. Um, things that um, are kind of separate from the mathematics is I want I want people to come out of this with the understanding that math is for everyone. A lot of people in math are talking about that these days. Is math for everyone? And the answer to that, I think, is absolutely yes. And people who feel shut out of mathematics um, make me realize that we as educators or mathematicians need to make sure that this, the math education system is welcoming everybody into it. If I could latch on to something you mentioned there, one of my favorite quotes in the book was your point that math mathematics is done collaboratively in the real world. And the insistence that mathematics education be real world based, from there, it seems to follow naturally that collaboration should be part of that educational experience. And I love that, that point. Yeah, my favorite thing, I think, one of my many favorite things in math circles, it's if I'm leading a circle and I have a bunch of students talking about something, one student will say something that's not like the right answer or the solution necessarily, but it has like a little bit of a bit of wisdom in it. And that will make the next student think of the next logical thing to do. And then that'll make the next student think of something so that by the time the problem is solved, hopefully everybody has had a hand in the solution. And it's not just one person who solved it. Although sometimes with students, they'll think that the last person who said something 
got the answer and I'll have to explicitly talk to them about how no, 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 she only said what she said because of what he said. And this person only said what they said because of what that other person said. And um, I, I think that this um, idea of almost like metacognition, like thinking about your thinking is productive for students to realize or to realize through maybe some guided facilitated discussion that, wow, we really did solve this collaboratively. So Rachel, in some of your later chapters, you re-examined math instruction from a human, human rights perspective. Uh, this first chapter was, I thought, very non-judgmental and uh, fair, and without being exculpatory at the same time. So I was hoping you could just talk through the account you give in this chapter. Sure. Yeah. So in my experience, human rights and math pedagogy were never linked or talked about directly together. Um, So in my chapter, I tried to demonstrate the relationship between a lack of human rights for students in school and how that negatively affects their cognition and their ability to engage deeply with mathematics or really with any other type of education or other type of subject, but in this book we were focusing on math. Um, So I use math as an example. Um, But anecdotally, in my personal experience, as I spoke about, as I wrote about in the book, um, there are a lot of of human rights issues in education. So in my chapter, I mainly focused on issues such as Um, children not being able to use the bathroom, um, not being able to eat if they were hungry, um, not being able to count on their fingers or doodle. So a lot of kind of micro um, bodily autonomy issues and how the, um, the failure to provide those basic needs makes it so students are unable to concentrate and to engage with the material at um, a deeper level. So I would say that as a caveat, um, looking back on what I have written um, when I was 14 or 15, I I think now that I what I wrote really lacked an intersectional perspective um, in that human rights in the education world and human rights in general um, depend on the identity of the people who are experiencing um, the education system, um, the government system and living under systems of oppression. Um, so, for example, um, issues of bodily autonomy, um, human rights in schools um, have a lot to do with race, gender, class, um, and other forms of identity or privilege. Um, so, for example, the school-to-prison pipeline that predominantly um, affects black and brown children is something that I did not write about in my book simply because I wasn't aware, not to say that as an excuse in any way, um, but just to provide a broader perspective that I think a systems analysis um, is really key when we're thinking about human rights in education and human rights in the classroom, given that we live in a white supremacist patriarchy. Um, so the way that students experience um, education and the the very like micro experiences with teachers, with school administrators, um, but also on the larger like school district funding um, all of that has has to do with identity and with oppression and privilege. 
So I just wanted to add that because I think that's really important for me to use that type of intersectional analysis. And I really feel like it was completely missing from what I wrote about in this book. Mm, That's interesting. I appreciated the power analysis that was incorporated in the chapter as written, but it's interesting to hear that you've expanded that model or your analysis to yourself. And I, I wonder if if there is there a new edition of the book that's eventually slated, or is this a standalone? Do you think? <laughs> since you since you brought that up, what do you think, Rody? Yeah, I don't know. We'll have to see what the demand is. <laughs> All right, we can come. We're, Maybe we'll, we'll come we'll back be, to that question. Yeah, I think we'd be happy to write more if people want to read it. <laughs> Fair point. So, Rachel, your next chapter is another one that I wanted to get a little bit into. Its perennial title is "Why Do People Hate Math." You identify myriad reasons and no one evades responsibility. So I thought it would be good to ask maybe what's one thing you think, for example, teachers could help address or one thing parents could help address and even students in your account? Yeah, definitely. Um, So I think that um, from the teacher perspective, um, a lot of the um, anecdotal accounts that I received about people's negative experiences in math classes had to do with the attitudes of their teachers. For example, teachers who were not very patient when students didn't understand a concept or who tried to rush through material um, and student, when students were lost um, or who didn't feel comfortable admitting they didn't know something um, and or who acted in a more author- authoritarian or disciplinarian style of instruction. Um, so I would say that a lot of the recommendations for teachers um, kind of come from a more like socio-emotional perspective of the manner in which they interact with students. Um, This was kind of a key theme across the interviews that I conducted. Um, I would say for parent attitudes, um, a lot of students feel a lot of pressure from their parents um, to achieve in in school, in math classes, to achieve um, certain grades. Um, But also, I think that a lot of the perpetuation of myths about biological or genetic predisposition to be good at math come from the family and don't just come from school. Um, So a lot of these of these gender biases as well are passed down from parents. Um, So the messages that children um, or students here in the home, I think, also influence um, their attitudes um, towards math and their beliefs about their own ability or their lack of ability to be able to enjoy and thrive in the mathematics space. Um, I would say for student attitudes, um, I think a lot of it comes from a lack of knowledge um, about how to engage um, in the most productive manner um, in learning. And that learning is, is an active thing, that you should be asking questions, you should be grappling with the material, you should be working with other students Um, but unfortunately this is not the way that, um, many classrooms are run in public schools in America. Um, so I definitely do not want to blame students for, for perhaps if they don't know the answer, if they don't understand something for not raising their hand, you know, or for, um, if they're confused, not asking for help. Um, but I do think that it's important that we try to, um, expand student access to, information about how people learn um, and how best to engage in your classes to get the most out of them. And that you should go to your teacher for help if you don't understand something. You should try to raise your hand to ask questions. 
um, even though it's challenging. And like I mentioned, there are a plethora of reasons why students often lack this type of information and guidance about how to maximize their educational experience. And rounding out your later chapters, there are a couple of questions I wanted to ask from, I think, the last. They both have to do with homework or with engagement. And one question you address is the right amount of homework, which I was interested to learn is somewhat age stratified, but also the kind of homework that proves useful and the question of using physical or even digital manipulatives, which is maybe a fancy way of saying <laughs> video games in the latter point. But what are your thoughts on, on the type and the amount of homework that's useful for students at different phases in their educational trajectories? Yeah, um, I would say in terms of the right amount of homework and the type of homework that would be most appropriate for students of different ages um, would probably better be answered by Rodi <laughs> or by another person who is trained in pedagogy. Um, so I don't know if you would want to interject, Rodi, or if you would just want me to kind of finish the more broader discussion about homework, but I would defer to educators on that. But it is true that there are different amounts of homework and types of homework, um, depending on the brain development of the child. Yeah, and I'll just add that in math circles, we don't um, give homework. Students can look at problems optionally if they want to. But in a classroom of math, um, sometimes there are diff different skills that are being facilitated, such as fluency, having fluency with certain math operations does enhance problem solving. So that question is a little bit beyond the scope of what we're doing, but that I would say that students probably do need to practice to develop the fluency that might give them the confidence to be able to engage in successful problem solving in a lot of settings. Yeah. And just to go off of that, I think that it's always about finding the right balance between um, practicing skills and really ingraining what was taught um, during the school day with not overwhelming students with too much work. Um, but also adding that practicing skills outside of the classroom to reinforce lessons that were taught is a, it's a kind of an integral part of um of learning certain concepts and that um just more of a broad scale like education inequity issue um has to do with um what students are doing outside of the classroom so for example over the summer um when school is not in session in the u.s at least um students who come from more privileged backgrounds with perhaps more educated or wealthy parents are often put in enrichment programs or science camps or art classes and have a lot of books in the home um, versus students who come from uh, lower socioeconomic status don't have these resources. Um, and this is one of the factors that, um, that influences the achievement gap because when students are not um, using their brains in the same way that they are during the school year, um, they lose a lot of skills. Um, so, it just also comes back to issues with inequity um, and that students are only in school for, for part of their day. and They're not in school all the time. So the environment at home and what they do outside of the classroom obviously has a huge influence on their 
experience in, in math classes and experience in school in general. Rodi, if I could return to you to ask a couple of more questions about um, your experiences as a math circle facilitator, your later chapter gets into, in more detail, I think, some something that's both a reward and a challenge of math circles as an instructor, which is improvisation. And one thing, one way in which that manifests is giving students the opportunity to stretch their muscles, their mental muscles in ways that you might not have been prepared for. So could you speak a bit about raising the bar in a math circle? Yes, because there are times, many times when what I'm expecting to happen doesn't happen at all. And the students say things that I didn't anticipate and I, I need to react to that. So I do find that as a facilitator, I need to prepare myself in terms of my my energy and my motivation and um, don't go straight into a math circle after pay- paying my bills or something like that when I might already be cranky. Um, and what I like to do personally is to, be, and I have the privilege of this because I'm not a classroom teacher being required to teach a certain curriculum is I pick my topics based upon my own personal interest. And I, that always motivates me because I love looking for the underlying structure of things and I love learning new things. And I try to never repeat a topic so that when I'm going in to lead the mass circle, and this is by the way, not what most mass circles leaders do at all. This is just me, but um, I find something that interests me and I try to learn a little bit about it so that I can, at least so that I can facilitate um, and answer a few basic questions, but not too, too much about it so that I'm bored or that my presentation of it becomes rote in any way. And I, I just, um, I just really like to, to play and to be with young people. And that's energizing to me. And I would recommend to people who want to lead mass circles to intentionally tap into your joy of um, facilitating this with young people before you walk into the room. I think that's a great place to try to wrap up. So let me ask a question that to me kind of sums up some of the messages of your book, which is, and which Rachel alluded to towards the beginning, how do we think about, or how should we think about, school math as opposed to real math? So in an ideal world, there's not a difference. But we're not, we're, first of all, we're not in an ideal world. And secondly, school people who teach in schools have these responsibilities to cover certain things and develop fluency. So um, in, a lot of math, in a lot of math classrooms in schools, um, Teachers are doing both. They're doing sort of the uh, doing presenting interesting problems, but also doing exercises, which is the practice to develop the fluency. And I like to think of doing these exercises that a lot of students find boring um, to be like if you're a musician and you're practicing your scales or if you're a competitive swimmer, you're in the weight room lifting your weights or something like that. Um, but that you hopefully 
get to do the real event, the real performance, the exploring the interesting problem in, in the same place. Rachel, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I would just add that, as I mentioned earlier in the conversation, certain types of mathematics are prioritized in school. And not to say that that is necessarily a bad thing or incorrect, just that math circles have the freedom to delve into a lot more niche or less commonly known um, types of mathematics and math problems that can be more engaging to students. So just by virtue of the, the constraints of school um, and there, there being only a certain number of years and there being curriculum, um, certain types of math, such as arithmetic, algebra, geometry, um, are prioritized when, in fact, there are many, many different types of mathematics. So as Rodi mentioned, um, I think a really good point is that math circle facilitators have a lot more freedom than classroom teachers to delve into a variety of types of mathematics and intriguing math problems. And that reminds me of one more thing, too. And I think, Rachel, you may have written about this in the book. There is a lot of talk in the math educational world about, should we actually start with arithmetic? Because arithmetic is seen by a lot of mathematicians as the tool for solving the more interesting problems, although some people find the arithmetic really interesting, too. I heard this analogy somewhere, I don't remember where, um, about what if we taught kids music? Um, I think this may have been in the book of Mathematician's Lament by Paul Lockhart. What if we taught kids music by first teaching them how to write the notes and what are the you know, what does the treble clef mean and blah, 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 before ever letting them hear a piece of music. By the time they learned all those prerequisite skills and were ready to hear an actual piece of music, they might not be interested. So why not let them hear the music first to motivate them to learn about the, the underlying um, skills? And let me ask one question that listeners might benefit from. Are there resources you would point listeners to, to find, or even to be trained to lead math circles? There are some resources out there. Um, there's um, a website called mathcircles.org, which has some good material on there. There's an organization called the Global Math Circle, which actually... Um, runs trainings for people to lead online math circles through their organization. There's the Julia Robinson Math Festival, jrmf.org. Um, I'll let you all know I am on the advisory board of that organization, so maybe I'm biased, but I use a ton of the JRMF materials in my math circle, and they offer online facilitator um, training for their programs, and also just fantastic materials for anybody to use in their own classroom or um, math circle. Um, the Natural Math website has um, in the past run a leaders course, which I think is going to be run again at some point. Um, there's a Facebook group called 1001 Circles, where people just talk about leading math circles. Um, there's a few books out there too. There's one called Out of the Labyrinth by um, Bob and Alan Kaplan, which gets into a lot of pedagogy. There's another book called Circle in a Box, which you may be able to download on the mathcircles.org um, website. And the book I mentioned a moment ago isn't specific to math circles, but there's a book called A Mathematician's Lament that gets into some of the 
philosophical underpinnings of the things that we're talking about today, finding the beauty in math and so on. And separate from these resources, is there a piece of scholarship or media that you think makes a good companion to your book? I have two of them. Um, One of them is a talk, which you can find online by a mathematician named Francis Sue, S-U. It's called Math for Human Flourishing. And another one by a um, math educator named Rochelle Gutierrez um, entitled Rehumanizing Mathematics. And both I've heard I heard both of those talks in person. They've become books and they've inspired almost everything I've been doing in the past couple of years in math circles. Rachel, do you want to add something? No, I think the Rhodes resources were very comprehensive. All right, then let me ask a final question, which is, what are you working on now? Do you want to go, Rhodey? Rachel, <laughs> do you want to go first? Oh, sure, I'll go first. So, so I'm, going to, I'm working on whether, whether or not to return to in-person instruction. I've been doing my master goals over Zoom and how I would do that. Um, I'm working on our own website. Rachel's working on this with me. We're at mathrenaissance.com. We were working through another organization before. And um, for the first time ever, I'm going to be leading a full year math circle. I've never led one for more than eight weeks. And it's going to be all the same students for a whole entire year. And we're going to be studying the axioms of mathematics, which is something that right now I know very, very little about. So I'm super excited to, to learn it and explore it with the students. Very cool. Hi. Rachel. <laughs> um, I am currently living on the border of Mexico and Guatemala, where I am volunteering at a refugee shelter for a few months. And then in a few months, I will be starting to work in Tijuana in Mexico on the border of U.S. and Mexico, where I will be um, assisting asylum applicants um, with their applications. Um, and yeah, I just finished my bachelor's degree where I was doing a year-long thesis on um, the intersection of climate change and forced displacement. Sounds like amazing work, and I'll look forward to hearing more about it. Thank you. I've been talking with Rachel and Rody Steinig, authors of Math Renaissance, published by Natural Math in 2018. Rachel, Rody, thank you so much for joining me. Corey, thank you. It was so much fun to talk. Thank you so much.